This program is brought to you by Emory University. This lecture will introduce and analyze two largely unknown homilies on Romans 16.3. That's correct, Romans 16.3, delivered by John Chrysostom in Antioch somewhere around uh, 386 uh, to 390 in the Common Era. Um, the entire last 16th chapter of Romans is often thought to contain largely just a list of names from Paul to people he knew at Rome. The common lectionary used today does not include it, and already in antiquity Christians, so-called heretics, and some of their pagan critics looked askance at such texts as not really being suited to a religiously or philosophically sophisticated imperial religion. So what was an orator bishop like John Chrysostom to do with such a pedestrian text? In this lecture, we shall see how, through rhetorical finesse of his own, John, the golden mouth preacher, tries to turn straw into gold, into, uh, to turn an insignificant, tiny text into a proof of the power of all of scripture. And yet, as we shall see, his own rhetoric in these two homilies leads him into new difficulties as well. What I'd like to do first is set out for you the context, both thematic in terms of some programmatic issues for biblical interpretation then and today, and then secondly, a little bit of historical context, and then we'll turn uh, to the homilies uh, themselves. And I hope you'll get to hear a bit of John's voice. Uh, a part of my work in this Guggenheim project is to translate 18 homilies by Chrysostom, and a part of my method is actually to re-preach them or to uh, enunciate my translation. And I try to get a sense of whether you are reacting as I think John wants you to react. Without, I'm not John, I, I have no il illusions fully in that, but I'm trying to capture in my translation uh, the interactive quality of live or pulpit oratory in uh, late antiquity. So, here we go. The standard narrative of early Christian exegesis states that there were two schools of ancient Christian interpretation. The so-called literalists at Antioch, such as John Chrysostom and his teacher Diodor, and the allegorists, most famously Origen at Alexandria. On this telling, an early Christian interpreter dealt with problems in the text by applying a consistent hermeneutic that focused on the letter or the spirit, and one had to choose. One had to stand on one side or the other. In the last 15 years, I've been working to complicate that narrative by looking at the strategic and creative ways that all early Christian interpreters approached their texts, identified the salient questions they posed or wished to avoid but actually couldn't, and offered readings that were based on what I call the agonistic paradigm of interpretation. What I mean by that is that textual interpretation is not just something that takes place between a reader and a text, but also between a reader and other readers. As textual evidence is summoned, to either back up or contest the claims of others. In other words, the Bible is cited as evidence for particular arguments, theological, philosophical, political, ethical, personal arguments that individuals wish to make. 
Often a part of the rhetorical presentation of those arguments is pressing a dichotomy that is in fact empirically false. That is, that the text can only mean A or B, but not A and B, or C, D, E, F, or Q. I've been trying to analyze early Christian biblical interpretation as less the binary affair that it often presents itself to be, i.e., I interpret literally, but that guy over there allegorically, or I interpret the text according to its deeper meaning, as any true intellectual and spiritual person would, whereas that guy over there, like a cow, can only look down to chew the grass while a great swarm of deep thoughts swirl over his head unnoticed. So, for example, I've identified what I call the veil scale in early Christian uh, interpretation that all interpreters navigate. That is, between the purported clarity or obscurity of the text. For instance, one claims that the text is obscure um, in order that once one has resolved that obscurity to proclaim it crystal clear. Or one claims that the text is clear but then has to deal with those leftover things that others just might deem obscure. And of course, obscurity can be both a virtue and a deficit. A text that is obscure might be prophetic, mysterious, cloudy because so closely aligned with murky truths. Or it could be obscure because of the interpretive, religious, or ethical deficits of the reader. The same, though, is true of the literal. The literal might bespeak commendable directness of communication on the one hand, or a pedestrian simplicity hardly worthy of deep philosophical truths on the other. As we work with two late fourth century homilies this morning, I would invite you to think about how the veil scale works, how John strategically creates problems in order to solve them, and then in turn how, having solved one problem, he introduces another. And also a few other dynamics. For example, what is the relationship between um, the offensive and the defensive uh, purposes of interpretation? It's football season, right? So are you on the offense? What side of the ball are you on? Is the interpretation meant to be a, an offensive move or a defensive one? And what about the relationship between playfulness and seriousness, as John seeks both to entertain and to surprise. Not another homily on Paul, his congregants might say, if he were too predictable. But also he seeks to maintain a sense of decorum and solemnity in the face of religious truths, on the one hand, and real threats on the other. So those are the prolegomena about the uh, nature and practice of biblical interpretation. Now a little bit of historical contextualization. It is perhaps hard for us to appreciate that in the 380s, in the great city of Antioch in Syria, one of the greatest cities of the Roman Empire, the Christian preacher was an insistent voice for a new Christianizing culture, 
one that did not yet feel itself secure. Remember that Julian, the so-called apostate emperor, had ruled just two decades before, from 361 to 363, and he spent most of his reign in Antioch contesting Christian doctrine, Christian spaces, such as martyr shrines, scriptures, and Christian claims to stand in and even teach the classical traditions. A preacher like John Chrysostom, John later called the Golden Mouth, was part of a new set of orator bishops who were the public voice for a new world of late antique urban culture with a new set of cultural heroes instead of Castor and Pollux, Peter and Paul, um, the martyrs, and of course Jesus uh, himself. A new set of sacred places, churches, burial grounds, marturia, a new assemblage of public rituals, baptism, something called the Lord's Meal, social forms and ardent ethical expectations, especially concerning the poor, but also sexual ethics, family piety, etc. Of course, these were not entirely new, but even in their uniqueness, they were built into existing sites, emulating existing forms of communal assembly and drawing upon established cultural values and theological propositions not entirely dissimilar from those espoused by Greek philosophers and employing the forms of rhetoric that had very long and stable histories extending back to classical Athens. It was a delicate dance of the old and the new, the old in the new, the new denying while appropriating and applying and recasting the old. But the Christian scriptures were indeed something new under the sun. A set of texts comprised of the old Greek Bible, the Septuagint as we call it, and some 27 documents comprising the Greek New Testament written between circa 50 and 140 of the Common Era. Within that Greek New Testament, the letters of Paul predominate. Some 14 of 27 documents claiming to have been written by Paul and two others referring to him directly, the Acts of the Apostles extensively and Second Peter. So we're now up to 16 uh, of the 27. The seven authentic letters were originally occasional writings that mixed shockingly specific and time-bound references, like the expulsion of a Corinthian man who, quote, had his father's wife in 1 Corinthians 5. They mixed this particularity with some more naturally universalizing arguments or universalizable, such as on the resurrection of the faithful dead found in that very same letter in 1 Corinthians 15. But were the Pauline letters fittingly scripture, sacred texts? Did they apply to persons other than Corinthians, Romans, or Thessalonians, and even to persons living beyond the decades of the 50s and 60s? And if so, how were they sacred? Were they sacred in every single part with equal weight? How were they weighty sources of cultural and religious knowledge. The case is perhaps easier to make 
when dealing with the epistolary bodies, with their often complex theological arguments and in turn their own appeals to scripture. But what about, for example, the epistolary greetings at the end of the letters where Paul greets in Romans 16 some 25 persons by name, which seems so pedestrian, so everyday, so time-bound, so uninspired. Most likely in his period as presbyter in this city of Antioch uh, in 386 to 398, after his return from four years spent in solitary life in the neighboring mountains, John Chrysostom delivered two sermons devoted to a tiny text, Romans 16.3, Aspasasta priskan kai akulan tus sunargus mu and Christo Jesu. Greet uh, Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. These two homilies on Romans 16.3 are among some 18 homilies in the enormous corpus of writings of John Chrysostom, probably the most prolific corpus preserved of any Greek writer, um, that stand outside of John's famous serial homilies or homily sets on the Pauline letters. Um, those homily sets constitute the first, or excuse me, the, the earliest extant complete set of commentaries on Paul's letters that we have in Greek. Um, Origen uh, and others preceded him, but they are not all extant, sadly. Um, John's sermons that I'm uh, working on here are largely unknown because they've never been translated into a modern language. And I'm preparing a translation volume on them for the writings from the Greco-Roman World Series because I find them so intriguing and such a laboratory for analyzing the kind of strategic biblical interpretation that I have mentioned above. John begins the first sermon by attributing to his audience the very viewpoint he seeks to overcome. I imagine that many of you are amazed at this passage of the apostles that was read, and indeed that you consider this part of the letter to be paragon and periton, to be trifling and superfluous, because it consists of just a tumble of names one after the other. In some ways, John may be setting up a straw man here, a hypothetical protagonist, and hence a kind of offensive reading, but it is not unlikely that the surprise he attributes to many of his hearers in the congregation was actually real, and hence a defensive reading strategy, and that they did not expect a homily dedicated solely to this part of the letter to the Romans, which largely does consist of aspasmoi, greetings, or what he calls prosreses, or forms of address. Further, behind this for John, may also be an apologetic concern that goes back at least to the second century, certainly with the anti-Christian writer Celsus, that in the eyes of outsiders, and we must remember that means the majority culture, the sacred texts of the Christians did not at all seem suited to the role, and certainly not suited to at, at the allegorical interpretation that an exalted religious text, brimming with deep truths below the surface, deserved and indeed rewarded. For the congregants, John would soon insist, the problem is not quite that they are speaking overtly against the scriptures in, the, in that fashion, but that their minds are busy carefully attending to other things 
of a detailed and specific nature, which he catalogs at some length. He chides them with a stern rhetorical contrast. You pay attention to fine details when it comes to the names and the pedigrees and the track records of the horses and the riders at the racetrack. <laughs> or to the actors and actresses and the dancers and the mimes in the theater. But, he says, you do not even know the number of the letters that Paul wrote. Or, let's say you do know the number, you don't know the names of the cities to which they were sent. After issuing this stern rebuke to his audience for focusing their cultural attention on things other than the scriptures, what, after all, is trifling or superfluous, John then lays down the gauntlet for his sermon. He promises that he will demonstrate to them without a doubt from this very suspect passage that there is nothing superfluous, nothing trifling in the divine scriptures and that whether the focus is on an iota or a single horn of a letter or even a simple address by name that it opens up, as he puts it, polu pelagos noematon. Hemon, that it opens up a great sea of insights for us. John, somewhat playfully, I think, then proceeds in this first homily to treat the single 10-word verse of Romans 16.3 as a speech or a literary composition in its own right, and he seeks to interpret it according to its literary parts, mere. John was, of course, rhetorically trained, and he knows these rules of literary criticism. So he identifies it as having a proimion. That is, that Romans 16.3 has an introduction, um, a, a rhetorical introduction, and it's the first four words, greet, Priscilla, and Aquila. And then he seeks to prove, um, through a thorough exposition of merely these four words. So notice the... Um, degree of difficulty, he ramps it up. You think 10 words are hard to show? I'm going to go down to four, and I'm going to show you that there's nothing superfluous in the scriptures. Um, that he will show that contravening, contravening the errant supposition with which he began, there is nothing paragon or periton, nothing trifling or superfluous in the words of Holy Scripture. The abundance of theoremata, spiritual insights that this little form of address of Priscilla and Aquila gives birth to through John's homiletic virtuosity that will unfurl this wonderful word anaptusistai, the unfurl the meaning. This will tra traverse the realm, the realms of ethics, hagiography, ecclesiastical politics, conventional and social wisdom, theological instruction, etc. Already in the first homily in its extant form, before launching fully into the proof for the power of this small utterance, the preacher alerted his audience that he would need a second day to draw out all the noemata, all the deep thoughts, all the deep meanings that are contained in these few words. He will not only make gold out of straw, but he will make a superfluity of gold out of straw that exceeds even a single homily. Naturally, uh, from an analytical point of view, 
we have to recognize that this is a somewhat circular argument um, as the hermeneutical principle underlies the homily, both the choice of passage and treatment of it, as much as it is the destination if successfully demonstrated. The orator entertainer bids us to see him perform this magical act. How will he demonstrate the wisdom in these humble words, the universal applicability of such a particularized utterance directed to two named and ordinary individuals, Priscilla and Achilla? John's proof unfolds in several steps. First, despite being addressed to Priscilla and Achilla, he argues, these four words provide a keyhole into Paul's virtue. Although Paul had been entrusted with the entire world, land and sea, all cities under the sun, both Greek and barbarian, Paul is so praiseworthy because despite ceaseless travel and countless worries for all people, he took such care for a single man and a single woman, and he mentioned them frequently in his letters. This shows unmistakably that Paul's megalopsychia, that his magnanimity, was universal. He didn't just visit it on a few select friends. But who were these two people, John asks? Were they consuls and generals, governors, or those who gained a certain reputation? Were they endowed with great wealth or among the leaders of the city? No, he answers. They were poor and indigent, living from the work of their hands. As Acts 18.3 shows, they were tent makers by trade. By trade, skenopoioi te techne. The low social class of Priscilla and Aquila becomes yet another proof of Paul's virtue, as John tells it, for Paul was not ashamed even in the eyes of the famous imperial city and its proud populace. John from the East has this sense of the populus Romanus, right? The proud populace of Rome. In the face of them, Paul was not ashamed to extend his greetings to these manual laborers. Paul, John says, was clearly more illustrious and more famous than anyone. He was more dignified than the emperor for proof of which he appeals to Paul's ability to heal from his mere garments and shadow, according to Acts 19.12. But despite his own high social standing, Paul knew the pitfalls of the whole system of social classifications that determines this usual apportioning of honor and shame. For he knew, he knew so clearly, that what makes true eugenia, a Greek word which means noble birth, um, but it also means nobility in general, and hence enshrines the question of whether you're born to nobility or you can attain it uh, through ethical discipline. For he knew, he knew so clearly that what makes true nobility is not prominence in wealth, nor abundance of possessions, but gentleness and equitability of bearing. Because those who lack this, while priding themselves in the glory of their ancestors, are boasting in a mere name, not in a reality. Because Paul astutely knew this, John says, he did not take much account of these indices of social status, but he continually sought nobility of the soul, psyches eugenia, and taught others to admire it too. With a delicious ironic reversal, John now pronounces the lesson learned 
from this most particular of Pauline pericopi. Hence, the benefit we reap from this statement of old is no tiny matter. We learn not to be ashamed of anyone poorer than we, to seek virtue of the soul, and to consider all our external circumstances to be superfluous, perita, and useless, anonita. The external circumstances, in Greek it's ta exothen, it's the things that um, happen to you that are outside of your control, right? The circumstances in which you find yourself, of which John speaks here, are precisely the encomiastic topoi that the horse racing enthusiasts and theater fans show themselves obsessed with. Family descent, upbringing, and other markers of worldly renown. It is not Paul's greeting of these two tent makers that is superfluous, John insists, but it's the very criteria of worldly importance defined by the majority culture that the apostle has defied and hereby overturned. The special virtue of the two tent makers, John argues, is that the apostle's hosts would have been able to observe with careful attention, paraterrain, the following things. They could have seen on a daily basis Paul's form, his walk, his look, his style of dress, his comings and his goings. Because, John argues, when it comes to saints, it is not only their words, remata, and their teaching, didaskalia, and counsel, parinesis, that serves as an introduction to philosophy, uh, excuse me, as instruction in philosophy, uh, didaskalias philosophias, but it is their entire way of behaving in life that serves to teach you the philosophical life. And you may know that the early Christians appropriated the language of philosophy for the Christian way of life, um, meaning both how you think about that life and how you carry out that life. Um, thus something like Pierre Radeau with uh, philosophy as a way of life very much at heart for, for John. So Priscilla and Aquila had access to the most particular and apparently trivial details of the life of Paul as they saw him in all of his activities. And he goes on to say, preparing a meal, rebuking others, encouraging some, praying, crying, going, and coming. This hermeneutical rule that nothing was trivial about the life of Paul is now applied to the letters, as John says. After all, we, if we have, when we have only 14 letters of his, carry them all around the world, what about the people who had the very source of the letters, who had the tongue of the world, who had the light of the churches, who had the foundation of faith, who had the very pillar and fundament of the truth, who would they not be living with such an angel? The hyperbole is, is uh, customary in John's oratory. We can talk about that uh, um, uh, in, our, in our dialogue after. Here, John compares the doses of spiritual grace that might be gained from the letters with those that Priscilla and Aquila had by living with Paul himself, to whom we know he has audaciously applied the epithet that the pseudo-Pauline author of 1 Timothy 3.15 had given to the church as the very pillar and fundament of the truth. While we only have 14 letters, note that very particular number, 14, 
Um, while we only have 14 letters, Priscilla and Aquila had their very source, hence potentially limitless, limitless in scope. But the universal Paul, as known in the 14 letters carried all around the world, was also connected with very specific contexts and even to all the very concrete physical objects with which he came into contact. Thus, John imagines Priscilla and Aquila gazing at Paul's bed, at his mattress, at his sandals, and from these gaining sufficient motivation for continual compunction and contrition. This wonderful Greek word, katanuxis, of staying up all night worrying about the state of your soul. Paul's sandals can do that to you. <laughs> For John, anything that touched the apostle, as inspired especially by Acts 19.12, you remember about linen cloths that were uh, applied to the apostle and then carried off as contact relics to carry out miracles. Anything that touched the apostle, no matter how particular or trivial, is a means of mediation of his religious truth and insight. The homily goes on into a variety of other exhortations, but I'm going to turn now to the second. Chrysostom's second homily on this single verse, Romans 16.3, opens with two rhetorical questions to the congregation that directly address their reception of the earlier homily and assume their affirmative response. So, were you instructed to consider nothing that is in the divine scripture trifling, paragon? Did you learn to investigate thoroughly? And the Greek word here is periagazistai. Did you learn to investigate thoroughly? In fact, the word is also used of snooping. Um, to investigate, snooped into the titles and names and forms of address that are written in the divine oracles. Notice here, he's made a wordplay that he's overturned the paragon, that which is trifling, by periargodzistai, right? By, by scrutinizing that which is trifling, you then find that it's important. And John affirms their affirmative with the following statement. For in the end, I suppose that no one who is industrious will dare to run past any of the words found in scripture, whether a list of names or chronological periods or a simple form of address to some simple folk. This sentence both complements the audience, so I just complimented you on John's behalf, Let's see, you pat you on the head, um, and lays upon them the continual burden not to be lazy, but to engage in the continuous scrutiny of the scriptures for which John calls. But if the prior homily were successful, why is there need for another? Has the point not been made? John offers a quick response to such an objection that may be lingering in the minds of his audience. Well, except so that this corrective point might be made all the more secure, come, let's investigate today as well the remaining parts of Paul's address to Priscilla and Aquila. The first homily, he reminds his audience, demonstrated that the proemion, that is the introduction, provided us with no small number of benefits. Tiny text, great benefit already given through the homiletical treatment, of course. So John's, uh, the, the value of the text and the value of his homiletic work um, are both to be held in tension here. He continues, this text taught us, and then we get 
get a list of the headings of the various topics in that first homily. They're called kephalea uh, in Greek. The chief headings of the first sermon, not quite in the order of their original disposition and fuller than what I've been able to, uh, to articulate earlier. Um, first, that work is good and idleness is bad. Second, how magnanimous and caring was Paul's soul. Third, that poverty is no obstacle to virtue. And fourth, that Priscilla and Aquila were greater than the emperor because of a trifold application of a then and now commonplace. They were insignificant then, but praised now. They were known only in a few places then, but they're known everywhere now. They were recognized then only on earth. Now they are recognized in heaven. Um, that's a nice uh, precis of that first homily. And the reason for a now universal renown of Priscilla and Aquila? Because they lived with Paul for such a long time, and hence they had a kind of unparalleled access to the saint and his wisdom. Here John repeats with emphasis, and I can hear you already wearying with me, just as I was saying before and I'm saying now and will not stop saying the thesis that joins the first homily to the second, for it is not only the teaching and the advice and counsel of the saints, but their appearance, their garments, uh, stolismos, and the very type of sandals, the style of sandals that they wore that holds great pleasure and benefit. It is at this point that John introduces an objection. But it is necessary for me to focus attention on some of the things that I spoke of in my prior homily and some that have come up since then because they contain a serious point of contention. <coughs> Greek term is zetesis. What is that? Well, I was saying that even the style of the garments of the apostles provides us with benefit. But just as I'm in the midst of saying these things, the law of Christ comes in saying, don't acquire gold or silver, nor copper for your belts, nor sandals, nor a staff for the road. This is Matthew 10, 9 through 10, with a, 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 a paraphrastic, um, a bit of a paraphrase. Now, why is this a problem? Because in Acts 12, 8, Peter appears owning sandals. The angel says, Peter, get up, put on your sandals. Um, and then in 2 Timothy 4, 13, Paul tells Timothy to bring the cloak that he left in Troas. So presumably he has more than one cloak. This is a problem. John introduces this zetesis, a point of contention or a question of dispute, in a way that is ambiguous. On the one hand, it could be, as he presents it, that he himself in the moment saw the problem of a possible contradiction of his own hyperbolic praise of Priscilla and Aquila that it pointed to in the scriptural record about the value and acceptable amount of possessions. And then he moved swiftly to address the problem that he himself had created. But it is also possible, especially given his repetition of his thesis as having been established in the earlier homily and consistently maintained by him, it's possible that some in his congregation had registered surprise at John's giving such attention in the earlier homily 
to apostolic possessions and even fashion as disclosing deep spiritual truths. Um, imagine at the back of church uh, as people came out. Uh, um, and we know from some of the homilies, by the way, that, that, that John did hear from his congregants uh, afterwards uh, uh, um, uh, points of contestation with the sermons. Both are possible and are perhaps not mutually distinct. And it soon becomes clear that the seriousness of the apparent contradiction in John's eyes and likely that of his audience goes beyond idle speculation. Chrysostom acknowledges that this is in fact a taunt that the Greeks, as he calls them, meaning non-Christian uh, majority culture, um, the Greeks are bringing this taunt against the Christians. That is, that they do not hold to Christ's own law of austerity of Matthew 10. The Greeks, many of whom overturn the houses of widows, strip orphans naked, clothe themselves in everyone else's garments no better than wolves, and living from the labor of others, often on seeing some of the believers wearing more than one garment because of bodily illness, they immediately hurl against us the law of Christ and say these words, didn't Christ command you not to have two cloaks nor sandals? Then how, then how then do you transgress the law that is set down about these things? Then after bursting out laughing, chortling and shaming the brother, they speed off. Presumably Chrysostom knows about such street hermeneutics. Um, uh, even if rather stereotypically established in this re retelling, um, from what members of his congregation have told, uh, to have told him. John promises in this homily to address this tzetesis, this point of contention, as to why the apostles Peter and Paul do not appear to hold fast to Christ's injunctions in Matthew 10, 9 to 10, both to demonstrate outright to his congregation that the apostles did not in fact transgress Christ's law, because such teaching is inherently useful for the believers, but also for a second reason, he says, because it will give you ammunition to stop up the mouths of the Greeks. And so this is the defensive cast of the oratory of which I spoke earlier. Um, so what is the solution to the problem in the language of Greek literary criticism that is the language of early Christian biblical interpretation? What is the lucis to this zetesis? As so often, John makes the zetesis worse before he solves it. After all, he says, if these were just any old two guys or people who didn't always obey Christ, then it wouldn't be such a big deal. But no, Paul and Peter laid down their lives. They were the chief and the first among the disciples. And they not only always obeyed Christ, but they went beyond what was commanded, as in 1 Corinthians 9, when Paul demonstrates that Christ said a missionary should live from the gospel, but Paul renounced that privilege. So why, this all being true, do they here appear in this respect to have transgressed Christ's law? John first says that he should be able to dismiss with the charge in a single blow by pointing out that the Greeks uh, who are accusing the Christians in this way are actually contradicting themselves. Because in order to make this charge, they are assuming that Christ is a trustworthy lawgiver, an axiopistos nomothetes, and something that they otherwise deny. So they are quoting the scripture as authoritative, though they shouldn't be. 
But John says, however, lest this repulse look like a desperate line of defense, although he did indeed include it. That's, um, uh, that, that's, uh, um, that's a rhetorical move uh, of Astesmos um, uh, and Preteritio. Um, however, lest this repulse look like a desperate line of defense, he then gives his own constructive argument. One should not read the text haplos, he says, simply or literally or at face value, but one must look at the text of Matthew 10, 6 through 10, and ask to whom, when, and for what reason did Christ command these things? These are the basic elements of historical criticism, which we must appreciate restrict rather than universalize the meaning. Hence, notice that John is here making the opposite hermeneutical appeal from that of the prior homily, which emphasized the universal in the particular rather than the, um, this uh, other way around. He mixes the three questions of the to whom, when, and for what reason a bit in his treatment, but I'll separate them here for our analysis. As to to whom, John maintains Christ said these things about restrictive possessions only to the apostles and not to everyone. He makes this by an exegetical appeal to the setting of the missionary discourse in Matthew 10, 1 through 5. Naturally, this line of excuse could work for Paul, but it couldn't work for Peter, who, as one of the apostles, was of course there at the sermon, uh, was, was there in the missionary discourse, and hence cannot be sufficient. Such a line of argument might also release the congregants from these stringent requirements, a point which, we shall later see, is indeed on their mind as well as on John's. However, for one accustomed to insisting that scripture was not bound to its original addressees, but speaks to Christ's people here today, this narrative appeal, i.e. that the words of Jesus are only binding on the persons who heard them, has significant limitations and risks. So John asks another question of his own about the biblical record. How could Christ have commanded his followers to feed the hungry and clothe the naked, in Matthew 25, the great parable, if they were all expected to have no clothes, or money, or sandals, etc.? How can a homeless person take someone into their home? Faced with this dilemma, one that was perhaps part of the taunts of those Greeks as well as the quandaries of his congregants. John argues for a generic difference between a law, a nomos, um, and a piece of advice, symbole or parinesis. A law holds in all circumstances, ek pantos tropu, but advice is contingent on the free choice of the agent, as in the example of the rich man in Matthew 19.21, to whom the command was prefaced by, if you wish to be perfect. Not surprisingly, John does not acknowledge that this is missing in the Markan version of the pericope. But John does not regard Matthew 10 as mere advice from Christ to the disciples. Hey, maybe you shouldn't carry a backpack all the time. Um, but in terms of the question of when, for Matthew 10, 8 through 10, John insists that Christ did not allow them to be under the necessity of these laws always, but that he lifted the injunction right before his death, according to Luke 22, 35 to 36. But now the person who has a purse 
should take it up. Likewise, the one with a backpack. And the one who doesn't have, let him or her sell their garment and buy a sword. So, Peter and Paul's later fashion acquisitions were after the binding period of this law had passed. But that still leaves the question, if he was going to lift it anyway, then why did Christ issue contradictory commands in the first place? For John, Matthew 10, verse 8, I noticed this morning, I didn't have it in my, in my text. Matthew 10, verse 8, which prefaces uh, the injunction about possessions, um, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out the demons. Um, this verse provides the clue that Christ issued this carefully limited command to the apostles only as accompanied and tempered by the miraculous signs that he provided so that the apostles could bear their penury more easily. Christ in this way, as John tells it, treated the apostles like a swimming teacher um, it's a really fun description. Like, I don't know if you've ever taught anyone to swim, but there's that moment when you need to let go, right? Or uh, like the mama bird who first supplied all the power needed himself, Christ did, and then gradually allowed the disciple, the apostles to do it under their own steam. Through this combination of pennilessness and power, during his earthly ministry, Christ wanted the apostles to learn, A, through austerity not to be lazy, B, through their own survival of this harsh re re regimen to show them that it was not all, due to, not all due to divine power, but also to their own contribution, and C, to learn to live a moderate life and to receive thereby greater doxa from mortals and from the divine. Luke 22.35 for John represents a moment of self-interpretation by Christ, one in which he releases the strictures of the prior legislation, but he slackened and released the strain of that philosophical way of life. This moment of inner biblical interpretation provides John a way, the way out that he seeks. But as the homily continues, John will now have to deal with the new quandary which, the, which his interpretation has drawn the eye to of why Jesus here in Luke commands them to take up the sword after advocating elsewhere for peace. A perennial problem, we should say, for Christian interpretation, then as now. As we have seen in the very occasion of his homily, each text brought in to solve one problem may introduce other problems of its own. John says at this point, we have one more obscurity before us to clarify. Christ, who told his apostles to turn the other cheek, commanded them to arm themselves with swords. Further, if this is what he really meant, wouldn't two swords have been grossly insufficient to fight off the arresting band that was soon to come? John concludes that this command cannot have been literal or direct but it was an indirect way by which Christ was alluding to the plot that was coming, uh, quote, from the Jews. And Chrysostom's anti-Judistic rhetoric is famous, and we could talk about that uh, in, in the Q&A. Christ did not wish to say this openly, but rather through enigmas, enigmata. As with Logia, like 
um, Matthew 10, 27, Luke 12, 3, what you have heard in your ears proclaim from the rooftops, what you have heard in the dark say in the light. It is not to be taken literally, but as a statement that boldly hints at the truth. Notice the oxymoron, hints, but boldly, right? <laughs> Clear or not. Darkness, he says, means Palestine. Light means everywhere on earth. Observe John Chrysostom, allegorist. Then he applies this hermeneutical key to the rescue verse become problem verse of Luke 22, 35 to 36. It is heard one way, he says, but it must be comprehended in another way, heteros noain. So a uh, machaira here doesn't mean sword, but it means a plot. This interpretation in context makes little sense. What would it mean for them to acquire a plot? But John blames the disciples for the incomprehension that results. Christ, as customarily John notes, does not reveal the enigma, but since they did not comprehend it, he leaves it to the future events to provide the means of interpretation, i.e. the arrest should leave no doubt in their minds about what he in fact had meant. John now pronounces that the problem has received its sufficient solution that Paul and Peter in no way transgressed Christ's command by owning sandals or a cloak, and he returns at last from what he terms a digression to the tiny text that started it all. Priscilla and Aquila then become the example of the modified, less stringent command about proper possessions. They who, by saving the teacher of the world and were common benefactors of the whole world, had just a bit more than they needed so that they could give to those in need, such as Paul, whom they served as their as host. And Paul, in turn, as the pericope continues, makes clear what they fully gave. They who laid down their own necks on behalf of my life. And that's the continuation into one whole nother verse, Romans 16, 4. Uh, so how? Actually, they possessed no abundance of possessions and power in the face of the mighty. But what they had was greater than all these things. They had noble zeal and a soul abundantly prepared for danger. Um, that's what they had. And that is why they were benefactors and saviors. For those who are rich, constantly fearful as they are, couldn't benefit the churches as much as those who lived in penury but were magnanimous. Such were Priscilla and Aquila. And here is where we must leave them and our homilist. Although John had two days of homilies to interpret the 10 words of Romans 16.3, I have just one lecture to try to do justice to his two very long sermons. Um, I thank you for your patience and I look forward to your comments, reactions, and questions exploring the great sea of issues about biblical interpretation that these two sermons have opened up for us. So let the dialogue continue. The preceding program is copyrighted by Emory University.